This is Brand and New from the International Trademark Association. This podcast series explores changes and dynamics in the legal world, now and tomorrow, with a focus on intellectual property. Welcome to Brand and New. I am Audrey Dove. Following the wave of protests over the world since March, further to a series of police brutalities leading to the deaths of several African Americans in the US, many companies decided to proactively change their branding strategy or even their product author. But what are the different ways brands have reacted to the current social movement in favor of black, indigenous and people of color? What do these reactions tell us? And how can their effectiveness and success be assessed? And how do they ultimately affect consumer perception? What are the risks for brands to get involved in social debates? To discuss these issues, I welcome today an expert in marketing, Professor Peter Golder from Tuck School of Business at Dartmouth College. Peter has been teaching at Tuck for over 10 years And prior to that, he spent 14 years with the Stern School of Business at New York University. His research focuses on market entry timing, new products, long-term market leadership, branding, and quality. He has won many prestigious awards in the marketing research field and was published in media such as The Economist, The Wall Street Journal, and The Financial Times. Peter, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you very much, Audrey. It's a real pleasure for me to be here with you. So, Peter, may I ask you to tell us the story of one brand that particularly strikes you among the many with offensive racial histories and imagery that have hit the newsfeed recently? Sure. Let me um, start by talking about the United States football team that's based in Washington, D.C. So, for many years, it's had a name that's uh, that is a derogatory term for Native American citizens. And people have questioned this name for uh, at least a half a century in this country. And, you know, for most of that time, it seemed like the name would would never change. Current owner, for his part, you know, is quoted as saying at one point, you know, we'll never change the name. You can put that in caps, capital N, capital E, capital V, capital E, capital R, never. So there obviously was, you know, tremendous uh, resistance to this. But there's, you know, there's a long history to this name. It's, you know, usage goes back well over 100 years, um, but is, you know, widely considered to be an offensive term. And that's how it's defined in most dictionaries. And, you know, here in the United States, dealt with this uh, similar terminology for years. The institution where I teach, Dartmouth College, uh, used to be referred to as the uh, Dartmouth Indians. But way back in 1974, the trustees you know, moved away from that term, saying it was inconsistent with the uh, institutional, uh, you know, objectives and priorities. But essentially, you know, society reaches a tipping point sometimes, and things that look like they will never change uh, sometimes change very quickly. And this awareness and responsiveness to racial injustice and, you know, a history of racial discrimination in this country uh, is one of those changes. And the impact on brands is is being felt very swiftly after after decades of debate. And I think it's important to, to point out that this, you know, change in this uh, football team's name was uh, was driven by corporate sponsors and and the brands, you know, uh, underlying those corporations. So, you know, brands uh, have to be ready for quick change, but they can be agents of change also. 
You have done extensive research on the history of brands. In your view, Peter, were brands ready to handle this challenge, meaning discuss and address structural racism, or is it something they had to figure out in real time? Yes, I think it's definitely the latter, and I think it's still happening very much in, in real time. I'm not sure brands really even now know which way to go. And let me just give you a couple of uh, examples of that. So if you think about the um, Aunt Jemima and Uncle Ben's brands, the news stories have been interesting about those brands. So some of the news stories about Aunt Jemima talk about that they're retiring the brand, retiring the logo, uh, which again is, you know, by the company's uh, own admissions associated with negative uh, racial stereotypes. Mm -hmm. There's similar thought about the Uncle Ben's brand perpetuating these harmful uh, racial stereotypes. But it's interesting now, if you look at the websites, it doesn't look like a lot has changed with some of the mm -hmm. uh, uh, imagery associated with these brands. So it very much seems like they're still trying to figure this out. So I don't think they were prepared for it. And again, you know, the change was very sudden, but, you know, websites can be changed fairly fairly quickly, and some of that uh, change still doesn't look like it has happened, consistent with some of the companies and brands' public statements. Yeah, so you, you think that it will take some time? It will definitely take some time. The big challenge for companies, I think, is you know how much of this past to give up, because in some ways, evolving the brand and talking about evolving the brand to make it more consistent with a with a more fair and uh, you know non discriminatory view of of society, uh, which both consumers and employees are demanding. That's obviously very important. Uh, the big question for companies really is to think about you know how much of that brand equity that was built up on these racial stereotypes, how much of that will be carried forward because even if they evolve the imagery. Some of the underlying brand equities still will have been established on these unfavorable racial stereotypes. So that's the harder question for companies to have to, to wrestle with. As the public outcry grew in the U.S., many companies raised their voice with the protesters. However, with this form of activism, many brands have been accused of hypocrisy for not being genuinely involved and making an actual difference. Do all brands have a role to play in responding to the issues of uh, racial injustice and police brutalities. If some have endorsed the Black Lives Matter movement to raise their profile and audience and mirror their competitors' brand activism, can it be finally prejudicial to them? Uh, or is it always worthwhile for companies to engage in brand activism? Yeah, that's, that's a great question and very timely for, for companies today. So I think one of the fundamental decisions for companies is uh, tension about prioritizing profits or principles. Some people call it purpose, but are you going to profit prioritize profits or principles? Hopefully, companies can rephrase this and brands can rephrase this as pursuit of you know profits through principles. And I think that's the point where brands are trying to reach where you can still be profitable, but it's done in a in a principled way that's valued by both consumers uh, and employees. So consumers expect brands to contribute back to society. You know, everyone knows that uh, many brands are, are making a considerable amount of money, and there's an expectation that those brands will also uh, give back. Part of this is driven really by the success of brands. You know, companies have been successful giving their brands personalities, having brands establish relationship with consumers. 
you know, but it, it turns out in the end that relationships are, are not a one-way street. Consumers expect something in return from their brands. Um, another way companies have to think about this is, you know, that reciprocity with consumers either has to happen through the brand or it has to happen through the company. You know, sometimes the actions will be uh, that society is uh, demanding will be consistent with the brand. So then you'd want to tie those actions more closely to the brand. But if that's not directly the case, then the, the company behind the brand still is expected to be, you know, part of this reciprocal relationship, to be giving back something to society uh, in a way that both consumers and employees find meaningful. And despite this boom in uh, brand activism I this spring, it has been reported recently that huge lists of keywords assembled to bluntly sidestep tricky topics such as police brutalities have demonetized searches, conversations, and issues around race, George Floyd, and the Black Lives Matter movement, therefore leaving those topics aside from most online forums where brands compete for consumers' attention and time. Peter, can you please explain to us how that works and more generally if brands should care about these issues in their online advertisement strategies? Sure, that's another great question because this is one of the ways that brands interact with their consumers, but in a way that is more uh, hidden potentially and not immediately aware to the average consumer. So here, you know, this isn't my primary uh, research uh, uh, expertise, but my understanding here is that algorithms are disqualifying certain articles uh, with content that is considered uh, offensive so that ads are essentially not associated with that content. Uh, but the important thing here is that the same words can appear in articles with vastly different messages. Um, in some cases, messages that brands may want to support or, or should be supporting. So here, this is another way that brands can play a role by influencing these algorithms and making sure that they're placing their advertising along with content that they feel is contributing to a dialogue on these important social issues. So while this is somewhat in the, in the background, this is another way that uh, brands can be playing an active role to bring this dialogue more to the uh, forefront rather than allowing these algorithms to keep this uh, dialogue in the background. INTA is a global association representing more than 30,000 brand owners and professionals dedicated to supporting trademarks and related intellectual property to foster consumer trust, economic growth, and innovation. Now I would like to talk about a specific brand, Ben & Jerry's, owned by Unilever, which is a model purpose led brand that has been consistent in its support of the Black Lives Matter cause since 2016, along with other progressive issues. In 2020, they moved beyond lending broad support to demanding specific action to Congress to pass a piece of legislation to create a commission to study the effects of slavery and discrimination in the country. The brand also called upon the Department of Justice to reinstate policies rolled back by the current administration, specifically those designed to curb police abuses. What is cause marketing and how does it differ from brand activism? You know, cause marketing essentially is uh, the brand really getting behind a cause that they believe in. So choosing something to support that both the uh, consumers and the employees believe in. You know, for a brand like Ben & Jerry's, I mean, this is really consistent with their brand identity. So having the brand be out front in terms of promoting these causes and calling for these actions is very consistent with the brand. 
for other brands being aligned with the corporation and supporting these causes uh, may be more relevant or some some balance between the two is likely to be relevant for uh, and appropriate for, for a number of brands. You know, when you compare cause marketing and brand activism, I see you know, more similarities between those terms uh, than differences. And it really comes down to doing something that's consistent with the brand and consistent with both consumers and employees' expectations for what that brand should be giving back to society. You don't see a specific risks to this approach? Um, people in the past maybe thought there was more risk for acting. And now I think there's a, there's a shift towards thinking there's more risk to not acting. So this is the, the tension that companies have to face is that more is being expected of them. Part of this results from the success of brands in becoming a part of people's lives. And you have this relationship that now is expected to be uh, you know, reciprocated by the brands. I think that's one of the transitions that's happened over time is that the, you know, the risk of not acting now is greater than the risk of acting. Okay, so it's not a trend for you. It's a long-term movement. It's a it's a long term movement. I think overall a a positive movement in terms of uh, having business and society be more uh, integrated and more responsible and accountable to each other. Peter, research shows that being diverse and inclusive leads to more innovative products and services, long term employee retention, and better financial performance. However, while many businesses have been quick to adopt a Black Lives Matters hashtag, it often has limited repercussions in their governance and management. Only four out of America's 500 biggest companies currently have a black chief executive. Diversity and inclusion programs now seem key for companies when it comes to employee well-being, talent retention, product design, and consumer experience, right? And what role for the marketing and intellectual property teams in this transformation, in your view? Sure. Well, first off, let me say that I totally agree about the benefits of diversity. I've seen this in much of my own research, um, you know, first on on innovation, where, as you mentioned, uh, diversity is uh, in new product development teams uh, has found over many years to be very good for innovation, very good for creativity. And more recently, some research I've done has shown that uh, diversity within MBA programs raises the uh, average salary for all students. So when I think about this in terms of marketing, I mean, one of the ways I think of the marketing function as being kind of the eyes and ears of the corporation, you know, bringing the voice of the customer into all of the company's decision-making processes. So in this environment, in, in all cases, you know, marketing must be attuned to an increasingly diverse customer base. So that internal diversity is also important to really being able to hear and understand those voices. And since 2013, Black Lives Matter has eclipsed the organization that coined the phrase and hashtag. It seems to be more than a slogan or an organization, but rather a generational social movement. What's your perception of BLM as a brand? Sure. That, yeah, that's a very uh, interesting question as well. So, so some of my thoughts about this are really that as a, as a social justice movement, that this is much more than a brand. But as a brand and thinking about it as a brand specifically, I would say some of the characteristics or attributes of it as a brand, I would say, are important, uh, highly relevant, timely, powerful, emotion-evoking, and strong. And, you know, as a brand, you know, it's helping 
uh, drive some meaningful and necessary, you know, societal change. It's another way that, uh, you know, that, that brands are able to capture and consolidate a lot of meaning in a way that people understand and can then, you know, respond. So it's, it's, it's having an impact in that way as, as a brand. But as I said, it's, you know, really captures this uh, social justice movement in many ways that transcends uh, what people think of as, as brands alone. Another important aspect of this that we touched on earlier is this idea that uh, perceptions can change very quickly. And perceptions of this as as a brand have changed quickly, but it really illustrates the, the power of an idea that can be can be captured in a brand, and how that can contribute to you know meaningful, important, and necessary societal change. Peter, are, are we currently living a moment where new markets are being created and new brands can emerge and thrive, and old ones disappear? In other words, what kind of opportunities brands hold on you? can genuinely build on right now to remain or become tomorrow's market leaders? Sure. That's um, a question uh, kind of near and dear to my heart. So I've, you know, for many years been uh, researching the, the longevity of uh, market leadership. So when I first started this research back in the 1990s, I thought I was coming up with what was kind of more or less of an empirical generalization is that leading brands, and by leading brand, I mean the, the market share leader in a category. Those leadership positions tended to persist for, you know, 30 or more years. And that really went from, you know, the 1920s up till the 1990s. That was relatively common rate of sort of uh, leadership duration. But over the last 20 years or so, that rate of leadership duration has been, you know, cut in half or less than half. So this is really a tough time for uh, brands in some ways. You know, when you're just managing a brand for a few years, things might not change a whole lot. But when you look at a 10 or 15, 20-year period, things are changing more quickly. The requirements on, you know, brand managers are greater than ever right now. You know, the ability for uh, needing to, you know, build your brand through social media, through the Internet, having customers sort of discover your brand rather than just uh, you reach out to them with mass media advertising has changed in a large way. But society is is changing too in ways that are that are moving very quickly. Brands have to be able to respond to this in order to stay relevant in, in people's lives. Because ultimately the best brands are, you know, meaningful and relevant to their consumers. And as those uh, as consumers change more quickly, uh, it's incumbent on brands to also change more quickly. But we're definitely seeing great greater challenges uh, you know, in brands maintaining leadership than we did uh, 20 years ago. Do you agree with Henry Ford's sentence, history is bunk, that you quote in one of your publications? So, uh, absolutely not. So I totally uh, disagree <laughs> with that. It's, uh, it's in my paper at the beginning of the paper. And thank you for pointing this out, basically, to set up the, uh, to set up the straw man. So the rest of the article goes on to sort of to uh, refute that notion and to describe how uh, important history is that we really have to, you know, understand the past in order to un understand the present. And so the his history absolutely matters. Let me give you just, uh, you know, one example of that from the article is that, you know, the article starts with this set of uh, 25 brands that were market leaders back in 1923. Mm -hmm. And basically most of those brands continue to be, nearly all those brands, 19 of them continue to be market leaders Uh, 60 years later, you know, four more of these were the number two brands. So nearly all these 25, you know, brands continue to be very successful. So that's kind of a provocative finding. And that really, 
you know, uh, suggest that there's that there's a static sense of leadership that once you get it, you sort of hold on to it. This finding was promoted in marketing textbooks. It was in mass market books. It was trade publications referred to this, and it became fairly accepted as as uh, the way markets work. So I went back to the original study here and was in some ways surprised, other ways not surprised, because I've seen many examples of this when you go back in history. Uh, the original study was not done on 25 categories. It was done on 100 categories. Mm. And at some point, somebody came along and picked the best 25 brands and put that forward as a representative sample. So, of course, the results are almost entirely different. They're really reversed in many ways when you look at all 100 categories. So if you don't know history in this case, you know, you're starting with a false premise. And that false premise leads to a leads to a false conclusion that ends up being very wrong because market leadership is transitory, and when firms lose leadership, they almost always never regain it. So you have to fight hard to, to keep it if you want to hold on to it. So you know that sense of history was very relevant in this one example, and uh, you know in my case, it's uh, it's relevant across the board. If we don't really understand the understand the premise, our conclusions are going to be wrong. Interesting. What is the most disrupting marketing innovation for you? I study history somewhat. I also study uh, study product innovation. So I'm going to include product as one of the sort of four P's of, of marketing. So in this sense, I'm going to go back a ways in history and, and say that uh, for me, the most disruptive marketing innovation was the telegraph. I'm just thinking about this. You know, we, we kind of wonder about, uh, are amazed with sort of, you know, internet and how this, uh, you know, connects people today. You know, think about living in the mid-1800s and you had to wait for a ship to cross the ocean to get news or you had to wait for, you know, a horse to, to cross the country to get a certain piece of news. And all of a sudden, a short amount of time, this information could be could be transmitted almost instantaneously from one side of the country or, you know, eventually ac across an ocean. That's really, to me, very transformative in the way societies interact with each other. And now what we see through the through the Internet, we certainly see a lot more data and a lot more functionality as a result of that widely expanded sense of data. But to go from sort of nothing to something to me feels like a bigger change than to go from something to more data. So uh, so I'll go back in history and pick the telegraph. Okay. Can you name a word that would summarize the last decade and the one you expect for the decade that is just beginning? Boy, that's a tough question. And uh, perhaps I'm going to stretch some, somewhat outside of my marketing and, and branding expertise in answering mm -hmm. this question. And um, I'll put these forward as contrasts in some ways. And I, I think a lot of the past decade was, was driven somewhat by a sense of fear. And, you know, the decade was, was uh, bookended by calamities of the financial crisis and the COVID-19 uh, crisis that we're currently in, which resulted, I think, in some ways of people turning inward. Uh, a greater opportunity for uh, more authoritarian forms of, of government. And um, my optimistic outlook for looking forward is to say that the next decade will be characterized by hope hmm. and where people look outward more, hopefully care for each other more and have a sense that we're, we're all in this together, that our actions affect each other, that brands will really have a role to play in this in the sense that... Uh, You know, if we're not only thinking about caring for ourselves, but caring for others, that brands in terms of their positioning and in terms of their the actions that they take as kind of corporate citizens will will have to reflect that as well. My last question, the last book you read. So it probably won't surprise you after this conversation, uh, 
for you to hear that it's a history book. <laughs> and um, it's the book called The Accidental President. Uh, it's about Harry Truman and his first four months in office. Essentially, this was at the at the close of World War II and uh, at the essentially the start of the post-World War II order. Understanding what happened at that time is still very, very relevant to what's happening in the world today. Thank you so much, Peter. That was a real pleasure. That was a great set of questions and uh, very provocative. And I uh, appreciate uh, the opportunity to talk about them with you. So my guest today was uh, Professor Peter Golder from Tuck School of Business at Dartmouth College. Thank you for listening to Brand and New, brought to you by the International Trademark Association. Be sure to tune in every two weeks on Tuesday for new episodes. If you like today's podcast, please subscribe and share it. We are always looking for new people to discover brand and new. And to learn more about INTA, its resources and events, please visit www.inta.org.